And so here we go. We're talking about Bible difficulties. If some of you have, uh, have not been in our class, let me just back up a little bit and tell you what we've been doing. We based this on that First Peter passage that Pastor Art preached about a few weeks ago, that giving an answer for the reason of the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. And so what we've been doing is dealing with a number of issues, biblical doctrines, as well as a lot of different types of questions that people say they, they come up with at workplace or people ask them. And we've been dealing with a lot of these questions, these Bible difficulties. Uh, the one we spent a couple weeks on, it was about races. And because it's a very contemporary issue right now, where did races come from? Is any one group superior innately, naturally? That had been preached in America for a number of years, that, uh, that the blacks were a cursed race and they were to be subservient to the whites. And that was preached by many quote-unquote Bible churches. So we dealt with those texts. Uh, we even dealt with this text. It was dealt with when Pastor Art was dealing with his Peter studies, but then we did it, uh, did it as well here, is that issue of, okay, well, servants are told to be submissive to their masters or subject to them. What does that mean? Does that mean that the Bible is promoting uh, slavery like America had in its experience? And we pointed out that the slavery in the Bible and the slavery of American issues, selling people for slavery was condemned in Scripture, New Testament, very clearly. And uh, so it wasn't the same issue. So we dealt with that. We dealt with this question. Um, one of the young people had asked me about this. What does the Bible teach? Does it teach condemn polygamy? So we talked about that. We talked about this text because several of you had asked in the last couple of years, why did God... Uh, destroy, have the Canaanites destroyed? Why does God uh, advocate war at times? And so the issue that we started here last week was this issue, and um, we, t- we talked, we're getting started, so I'm going to back up just a little bit, but if I, if I get off target and start ranting, and uh, we'll never get through the material, but I want to keep it flowing. If uh, I'm going to highlight a few things we talked about last week and go and, and get it online to get the material. We pointed out that this whole question is a very pronounced question in our society. I, I'm not saying anything you don't know, but what I, what I want you to catch is that what's being portrayed right now in the media, uh, in programming, is they're presenting that gay is a normal lifestyle. And not only should it be tolerated, it should be embraced, okay, and totally advocated for. Multiple businesses, corporations, social organizations are pushing for widespread acceptance and approval. Those are the key of what we're facing more and more. Not just acceptance, but we're asked to approve this uh, this issue or other a lot of these types of practices, we pointed out that even though states had um, a number of states had passed different laws about some advocating and saying we'll allow same-sex marriages, other states said no. It all became a mute point in June of 2012 when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that on the Equal Rights Amendment, therefore uh, homosexual marriages need to be accepted across every, the board across the United States. Uh, schools are being encouraged to openly accept and even encourage young people to explore their sexuality, even in the same gender sexuality. The big issues that are coming up, like in Florida, uh, those types of controversies of where do we teach kids and how young do we teach them. The part that we're, uh, that we're reacting to is saying many churches in America have come to the point that they're advocating for uh, that whole issue. Oops, I probably went too fast here. They're advocating for the idea of same-sex marriages. A lot of the major denominations in America right now. Uh, and again, the chart I give you is a little bit dated. Therefore, we added that in 2021, the Methodist Church also uh, got on board with that. There's a whole theology that goes with this and a whole argument. The arguments typically we pointed out, and we discussed these last week, so I'm just going to go quickly through them. Uh, it's no one's business what somebody does with their own body. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. As long as two people love each other, then it must be okay. My, my response to that is then anything goes if your standard is love. Anything goes. Any type of thing that you would look at and say, then, then Paul was wrong in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5 about a young man who is having physical relationships with his stepmother or some type, his father's wife whatever that be. As long, if we're going to say as long as they love each other, it was okay, then that whole passage of Scripture is taken out of Scriptures. It's no longer true. 
And so uh, this is a very dangerous argument to say as long as people feel, then the feelings determine what's right and wrong. The problem we have with that from the Bible is the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's dangerous to make our feelings the standard. People are born, uh, born this way. They can't help if they're gay tendencies. Um, we're going to show from scriptures this morning, if we get that far, it is a choice. It is not genetics. Scriptures makes it clear it's a choice of a lifestyle. Um, it is acceptable to most people today, therefore it's okay and should no longer be viewed because we are more advanced, we are more uh, progressive as a society, therefore we've come to the point that, our, that the bulk of our society says it's not wrong, therefore it's okay. Well, by that standard... Okay, then we have abortion is okay, drunkenness is okay, premarital sex is okay, violent acts of going and stealing people's property, then that's okay, uh, denying and cursing God is okay. If we make our hearts or our poles our standard, we're in big trouble morality-wise. Okay, we have to go by the standard of the Word of God. And so what may be legal may not be right. Would you agree with that? Okay, okay, so we have this, and I'm speaking to the choir as the most part, but I understand that you're going to have to deal with this issue in the workplace. That's why we're covering it. Um, if you weren't with us last week, I took time to talk about The theology is called gay revisionist theology. That's a term you would find on the Internet. You would find in churches talking about it. Some advocating and saying we hold to a gay revisionist theology. Uh, that means that we are revising what we used to think and teach about gays, about homosexuality, same-sex marriages. And so that term is coming from those who advocate the idea that same-sex relationships are great, they're fine, there's nothing wrong with them. So it's called Gates, uh, Gay Revisionist Theology. Now, what they argue is they argue from biblical, biblical passages. And by the way, you can make the Bible say anything you want. Yes or no? You can. Okay. Can you take a part of a passage and develop a bad doctrine? You can sure do it. Satan did it in the Garden of Eden. Okay. He twisted some of the things that God said. Does God call us to love all people? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. So here's where it goes. Uh, to, God calls us to love all people. Therefore, to oppose and condemn homosexual activity is unloving towards gay people and it causes unnecessary guilt, division, and self-esteem issues. And I'm quoting from one of the theologians that I was reading online that's talking about how we're supposed to love all people and not condemn or criticize anybody who has the uh, choices of getting involved with gay uh, relationships. If that's the case, then what do you do with passages of Scripture like Galatians chapter 6? You which are spiritual, if you see somebody overcoming a sin, you which are spiritual, seek them out and help them. What do you do with the Matthew chapter 18 passage about going to somebody who has a, a problem with you or has uh, created stumbling situations and you're going to go to talk with them? Okay, What do you, what do, you do if you're saying, okay, we're supposed to be loving at all times, what do you, and that means don't correct and don't challenge, what do you do as a parent when somebody in your household is doing wrong? So you look at that and go, yes, we're supposed to be loving, but real love at times confronts. Real love challenges. Real love, teens, if you have a friend that's doing something, they're getting involved in drugs. They're getting involved with, you know, some strong drugs that are going to become addictive. If you love that person, you go to them and you try to help them to get out of it. You warn them about the dangers. Yes, no? Okay, so if you see somebody that's doing something that is wrong or dangerous, love confronts in a, in a gracious way. It doesn't just say, okay, whatever goes, <clears throat> goes. The Bible does not speak in condemnation of homosexuality. Now, the theologians at this point are arguing that all the passages that talk about homosexuality, they are not opposing uh, consensual relationships. They're opposing rape. They're opposing molestations. But their point is that God never really condemned any type of same-sex relationship where the people wanted to have that relationship. And so they have redefined all those passages. I'll show you what they do with, um, <clears throat> with Psalm Gomorrah in just a couple minutes. So you have all these theologies that are coming out. And this is the one we stopped at last week. Jesus never personally 
specifically said anything himself. He didn't say anything against homosexuality. And so the argument there is that since Jesus didn't talk about it, then it must be okay. Well, there's lots of things Jesus didn't talk about specifically recorded in Scripture. In fact, we know that Scripture says that everything that Jesus taught and all that he did, if, all, if it would be recorded, all the books of the world couldn't contain it. So the, the Bible never declared that Jesus um, dealt with every issue. And besides, there's lots of issues he didn't deal with that you know, you, just common sense, and that's where we're we're now struggling in America. But common sense says Jesus was not advocating this because he didn't talk about it, such as these types of things. Did Jesus advocate incest? He never talked about it, therefore it must be okay. Really? He never talked about rape. So therefore it must be okay? Really? You're going to go with that on a theological point of view? It's a very foolish and distorted type of an argument. By, by putting this back on Jesus. Um, so you have uh, many of these religious topics and practices. I gave you a whole bunch of others last week that Jesus never addressed, and yet they're very important issues. Um, am I stuck here? Kevin, can you help me out? Okay. I just froze. Okay, there we have some of the gifts, the priesthood, the believer, other issues such as that. I'm having an issue, so somebody in staff help me out here while we keep on going. Um, one of the, some of the other arguments that happen here, and whew, let me grab my notes since I don't use notes, but the wall. Um, one of the arguments that is commonly uh, promoted with this whole idea uh, that we've been talking about and they've been uh, dealing with is where uh, we get this idea that Jesus' relationship... Thank you. Okay, this is where I wanted to go. Jesus' relationship to the church. This is an argument that's used right now. In the church, who can be a part of the church? How many people? What type of people? Okay, okay, so Jesus, the argument is Jesus accepts all types of people into the church. Go to 1 Corinthians 6. And he talks about it in this text where he makes this comment about what kind of people make up the church. And he says, verse 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither the fornicator, idolaters, adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous. I'm in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 10. Nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And then he makes the comment in the next text, this is where some of you were. So in other words, what type of people are making up the church of Corinth? People with bad backgrounds? Yes, no? Okay, people with garbage in their background? Yeah, okay. So the point is, we agree that the church is made up of people, of all kinds of people, with things in their background that are not, that are not going to get them into heaven. Things that would condemn them to hell. Um, let me rephrase this. Do you have things in your background that are condemned in Scripture? Okay, I do. I do. I think all of us do. Because Scripture says, for all have sinned. Okay, now we have different levels. Some of you, some of you young, younger folk and some of you adults now, you had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home. You didn't get into the same garbage that some of us had in our background. Some of us got saved only as teenagers, but it was enough years to get into a lot of garbage. We have others here in our church that they spent their, some of their adult years in some real garbage stuff. You know, but praise God, God saved and forgave all of us, no matter what the level of garbage is in our life. And so we say, yeah, we agree. God talks about people in the body of Christ having all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of difficulties, even difficulties that are things that are not considered righteous, that would consider us being condemned to hell because of them. Even the practices, he's making it clear in this passage where he uses the words where he's talking about, he says, the idolaters nor adulterers, in verse 9, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. He's talking about homosexual lifestyles. 
Okay, the uh, difference between the effeminate and the abusers, as some, and I'm not sure about this, but this is where some commentators conclude is whether they're the passive or the aggressive partner in the relationship. Passive being the effeminate, the other would be the more aggressive partner in that relationship would be the abusers of themselves with mankind. Whether that's the case, I'm not sure. That's a possibility. But the point is, he is saying that even some in the church of Corinth have been involved in the past with their homosexual lifestyle. Okay? And, um, and so he's making these observations about that. But the key phrase is, such were some of you. Such were some of you. Okay, and so if you're looking at the text, you have to say, you, you can't stop with just saying, okay, you know, the, the, you know, it's okay for them to continue. No, no. Such were some of you, but you are now what? Going to the next phrases. You are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified. Okay, and then he goes on, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient or necessary for us to be involved in. And so he's talking about people in their past are now saved people, they're being, they've been justified, they're being sanctified, they're growing out of that lifestyle, and they're in the church. And so we, we would agree with that. The church is made up of people with sordid backgrounds, Nothing wrong with that, okay? But here's where it goes. They would say, well, the gay revisionist theologians say, well, they can continue in those same sordid backgrounds and be a part of the body of Christ. No. No. Again, this passage says, such were some of you. Take and go over to 1 John. 1 John, and this is an important text, and we need to clarify in 1 John where he talks about, in 1 John, and, and by the way, are we still struggling with sin? Do we still as a group, as individuals? We still do. We still do. But in 1 John, he makes this clear, that if we are children of God, if we are born again, he starts off talking in verse 5 of 1 John 1. This, then, is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness. If we say we have fellowship with him and we continue to walk constantly in darkness... That is in that which is condemned in Scripture. Sinful lifestyles. We lie and we do not the truth. If we claim to be saved, but we, but we have sordid practices continuing in our life, we're probably not born again. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Christ cleanses us. And then he allows, he says, okay, what if we, are we saying we're perfect? No. If we say that we have no sin, we, what? We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But what's the, what's the hope we have? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. Keep on, the word cleansing there is keep on. Keep on purifying us and helping us to grow out of that. Let's go over to First John chapter 5. First John chapter 5, uh, I'm sorry, 3, 3, verse 5. Verse 5. And you know that he was manifested, Jesus was, to do what? Take away the sins, and in him is no, no sin. Whosoever abides in him... What's your Bible read? Ooh. Whosoever sins has not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that does righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that... What do you have? That committeth... I have committed sin. What do you have? Anybody else? Who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil sins from the beginning. And he goes on, verse 9, Whosoever is born of God does not... What do you have? Okay. There's a problem there, because all of us who read that, immediately our initial reaction is, we're not supposed to be sinning at all. Understand that all the verbs in the passage are talking about and making it clear is practicing habitual type of sin. Okay? It's not saying that we don't sin. He's already said that earlier in the book. If we confess our sins, he's, a, he's making allowance that we may fall flat on our face at times. But is that sordid background still your perpetual practice? Is that your, your habitual relationship, lifestyle? If it is, then you're not, you're not saved. You're not saved. So people who get saved... 
what does the Bible says? Okay. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. New creation. That's this, all these passages complement each other. And so, um, yeah, we look and we say, okay, somebody who is a saint who is involved in sexual immorality, lifestyles that the Bible calls immorality, okay? And if they're perpetually involved with that, habitually involved with that, continually involved with that, they're not born again. If they happen to be born again and they're just rebelling against the Lord, what are we supposed to do? Okay, we're supposed to challenge them. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 5. Not only do we challenge them, but we're supposed to put them out of the church. The church that is open to everyone with sordid background, but those who continually practice that sordid type of lifestyle, there needs to be some form of challenge and confrontation, not open-arm acceptance and approval of their lifestyle. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 5. It is reported commonly among you that there is fornication among you, such fornication as so much as not his name. By the way, the word fornication, does this give you the idea, is pornea. And most of the times it appears in Scripture, it has the idea of pornea. You understand where that comes from. We get pornography out of that. Pornea means immorality, of sexual immorality. Most of the time, it's like an umbrella clause. Just any type of immorality. It could be premarital sex. It could be adultery. It could be homosexuality. Uh, it could be engaging in pornography. Whatever. It's, it's a big umbrella word, typically. And so here he's talking about, he says that somebody in the church, somebody that's, engaged, that's there involved in the church is involved in some type of sexual immorality. And he goes on, he says at the end of verse 1, it's even the unsaved, the Gentiles, they wouldn't, even talk, they wouldn't even approve of this. One should have his father's wife. Incest with mom or having relationships with stepmother, we don't know. And you, here's how the church was responding. You are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that does this might be taken away from you. In other words, their response is, we're loving, we're loving, we're loving, we're loving. We're going to say it's okay, we don't want to upset the person. If we confront them, we might discourage them, we might create guilt, we might create a suicidal tendency, therefore we don't want to say anything bad to the person that they're doing wrong. He goes on, For I verily, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, I've judged already, as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you gather together in my spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your glorying is it's not good. Your approval of this, your acceptance that say, we are progressive, we are open to everything. He's saying, no, no, no. When it's immorality, you've got to challenge it. You've got to confront it. You've got you've to pray about it. You've got to deal with it. And you've got to challenge. And then he goes on, he says, your glory is not good. Know you not that a little leaven... Okay, leavens the whole lump. It'll, it'll affect the, the entire moral code of the entire church body. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that he may become a new lump, as you are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is, sacrif- uh, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice or weakness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in a pre-First Corinthians epistle, not to company, to fellowship with who? Okay, be careful of who you hang around with. Because if you hang around people who are sexually immoral, what's the problem? Yeah, birds of a feather? Okay, you may be affected by it. That's where he's going. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous extortioners or idolaters, for then must you needs go out of the world. So you're going to have to have some contact with people who are of that lifestyle in order to share the gospel. However, he goes on, He says, But now I have written unto you not to keep fellowship if any man that is called a what? A brother, a fellow believer, who be a fornicator or covetous or idolater or railer or drunkard or extortioner. With such a one, what are you supposed to do? Or not do? What does he say? Don't even... Okay, remember, he's talking about real hospitality, fellowship, real closeness. Don't even do that. And then he ends up the passage where he says, For what have I to do to judge them that are outside the church? The answer is nothing. Do not you judge them that are within? Yes, 
we're supposed to deal with in, but then them that are without, God takes their take care of them. But you put the wickedness away from you. That passage contradicts this theological idea that we're supposed to be accepting and approving of somebody involved in any type of sexual immorality, bring them into our church, allow them to live as they, uh, they want to live, and say we're loving. That is condemned in this text. We're supposed to oppose, love opposes evil to try to bring that person out of the evil. And so the idea, we agree that followers of Jesus, we should openly accept and receive all kinds of genuinely dedicated believers, no no matter what their background. If it's under the blood, it's covered. It's covered, okay? Uh, We also should be willing to reach out in a loving fashion to people of all kinds of behaviors, to reach out, to share the love of Christ with them. Doesn't mean we need to approve of what they're doing, but we want to at least reach out to people. I think it's appropriate that if, if somebody comes to our church and they're living together, you know, two of the same gender, I think it's appropriate for us to be gracious to them, to try to share the love of Christ. And yes, I'd go to their home, I'd sit down, I'd answer questions from the Bible. But guaranteed, as they learn the Word of God, guess what's going to come out? That that lifestyle is wrong. It happens frequently in Bible studies. We do a lot of different Bible studies with people over the years that people may not be married. They may be living together. When we first get into the Bible study, I've never done this. I've never made my first lesson in those cases about living together unmarried. Never done that. But in the, after about the second or third lesson, guess what they ask? They bring it up. Typically, they will bring it up. They say, hey, something's bothering us. Does the Bible say that what we're doing is right or wrong? And the Spirit of God works within them. So we can graciously, lovingly try to minister to people, but they can't, they can't become an active part of the body of Christ living in such a lifestyle. It'd be a contradiction. And so we go a little bit further, um, the, uh, this idea. I want to get into this one. <coughs> okay. When you take the Bible and you try to make it say anything, it's what, it just, it irritates me what people do with scriptures. David and Jonathan is used as uh, advocating a homosexual relationship. Here's the verses that are used with David and Jonathan. Jonathan loved David. It comes up twice in the text. And their, snow, their souls were knit together. We talked about this when we were in that series. The gay revisionists say this means they loved sexually. Their souls knit together meant they had sexual relationships. They were practicing homosexuals based upon the English translation. But when you go back and you study the words, okay, the word, the kasar, the word that's knit together, it has the idea that they were planning together, they were in league. In all the different references, it has nothing to do with sex. Nothing. It talks more about cooperation and agreeing. The word that's used for love twice in this text, uh, the versions of it, one is Ahab and Aheba. Um, the different versions, it's talking the same words are used for father-son relationships, marriage relationships, uh, servants-to-master relationships, um, people-to-God. It doesn't, it doesn't automatically mean sexual relationships. The, another phrase, Jonathan stripped himself. Therefore, that shows he was practicing homosexuality and sexual relationship. Do you remember the text what he stripped himself of? Anybody remember? It doesn't say he stripped of his clothes. He stripped of his outer robe. Okay. He's got his, he, here's what he has. His bow and his armor. It doesn't mean he stripped himself of all of his clothing. But he gave these, these items that were very personal to him and distinguished him. He gave them to David to honor David as a friend. Here's one. They kissed. Therefore, they were practicing a homosexual relationship. You want to answer that one? Uh, yeah, in the New Testament. It's, you know, it's cultural. In the New Testament, did men kiss one another? Yes, they did. Not the same as what we're talking about, a passionate, you know, intimate type of a kiss. It was a greeting. It was to show affection. Okay? I, I don't know about you. Okay? 
Well, even in some of the male members of my family, when we greet, I don't have a problem with giving a kiss on the cheek. I do that with my, my kids when they were growing up. I did it with the grandkids. That doesn't mean there's something sexual. It just means it's a cultural expression of care and love. Here's one. Your love is more wonderful to me than that of a woman. Oh, it means they're homosexual. Do you remember who's saying this? This is David talking to Jonathan. Okay, does David have a reason that he might be commending Jonathan's love compared to a woman's love? He married, John, he married Jonathan's sister, Michal, Michael, however you want to say it. They were married. Who remained loyal to David? Jonathan or his sister? Jonathan. Jonathan was more loyal. His commitment to David was far more than David's own wife who bailed on him because David was, you know, was opposing, she was, she was opposing David's worship. And so it's just like, come on, people. If you're going to read scripture, read it correctly. Then, then we get to this one. Then we get to Jesus practiced, practiced homosexual sex. This is, the, this is a gay revisionist theology. This is preached in a message that I brought up in one of these churches. That they were advocating this. And the reason is, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples. Do you remember the setting? Okay. And do you remember when did this happen? Last Supper. Last Supper. And they're pointing out, they're saying, without me being coarse, they're saying that he was in his lap area. Therefore, there was something homosexual, sexual relationships going on. Besides getting really irritated, what does the passage really, idea really say? Yeah. The, the, uh, the person that he's talking about, by the way, John doesn't refer to himself in the first person. He does what often writers do. He went to the third person, so he's referring to himself. The Apostle John, who is younger, and he's just saying the Apostle who Jesus loved, referring to himself. He said that while we were there at the meal, and when they're at the meal, the word, by the way, that is used for bosom is translated in most passages, uh, ancient passages, just, you know, the... Uh, the, uh, the King James and other English translations shifted a bit, but it's, the word typically is chest. Chest is different than lap. And when they're sitting at a meal, they're, I, I'm going to do this and I won't get back up. Okay. Um, they were more reclined like this in a meal. And so if John is there and John wants to talk to Jesus, he either flips on his side or he does what? He leans in this way, and his shoulder basically touches Jesus' chest, and therefore they're homosexuals. Really? Really? You're going to run with that one? So you go, okay, what, what do we know? Jesus never sinned. Yes, no. Jesus didn't sin. So we have to go back to the question, then, what does the law say? What, did, what rules did Jesus operate by? And it's going to be very clear in the next couple of minutes. We want to just continue a couple other thoughts here. If we follow this gay revisionist theology or any other theology, this opens up the Bible to any interpretation. If you take passages out of context and if you base on feelings, that's dangerous theology. Terribly dangerous, no matter what you're talking about. This puts a higher regard for feeling and public opinion than it does the, uh, the standard that thus saith the Lord. There is something else that I find that is... Um, that is really, I was going to say queer, that's the wrong word, in the context. Something odd about this argument, something very odd about this argument is they, they will accuse us of not being loving. And by the way, we're going to get more and more of this. This thing is on the internet. I have no, no qualms that, you know what, we could probably get a warning from YouTube with a lesson like this that we may be taken off air. We might have people who would react and say, we're promoting hate speech. That's where the society is going. Yes? No? Okay. So um, what's interesting to me is the people who are accusing us of being unloving are by the very action accusing us falsely. 
Is that loving? You know, to distort or to, to take out of context what we're saying. And by the way, this whole argument really devalues ladies. When you're talking about male, male homosexuality, it devalues ladies. Does that make sense? Okay, because what you're basically saying is man doesn't need the woman to be complete. You know, that, but God's design is basically, you know, at the very beginning, when family was, was put together, why was woman made? It is not good that a man would be alone. I will make a what? A completer, a helpmeet, one that matches. And so God, was, God designed, which brings me to this thought. And let me just mention it. I don't want to spend much time because I want to get to Romans 1 in just a second. But um, God designed sex in the Garden of Eden. Sex was not a result of the fall. How do we know that? How do we know that sex was, is not a bad thing? It was before the fall. What did, what, go ahead. What's that? He said be fruitful and multiply. Before the fall. Okay? It was before the fall. So we have to ask our, our, our question, and this is, this is a broad question. This is something that should be discussed in every home. Okay? Why did God create us as sexual beings? Why did God give us those desires? Which he's implanted, unless you're extremely gifted, he's implanted in every one of us to have sexual um, desires that, that crop up in our lives. Why did God do that? Okay. Well, when God created man and woman, they were designed to complement each other. By the way, basic bio- biology, right? Just ba- we go by the science. Okay. <laughs> basic, bi- basic biology 101 is man and woman complement each other. They complete each other. They are made, even sexually, to be compatible. Okay? That's, that's just, that's normal. That... that that's a, you know, early, early sex education. It's just, it's just clear. Why did God make us that way? Why does he encourage husbands and wives to have sexual relationships? There's three reasons given in Scripture. There's three reasons. I'm not taking them in the order that might be of, a, of given in Scripture or importance. But there's three reasons why sexual activity. I'm going to come to that one last. Okay, um, this one, God created us sexually. One is for pleasure. Sexual relationships were designed between a man and a woman for pleasure. It let the husband give his wife her conjugal rights, likewise the wife to her husband. Okay, there is the idea of meeting one another's needs and having pleasurable relationships. There is another reason given in the same text. It is to prevent temptations. He says, nevertheless, to avoid immorality, let every man have his own wife, every woman her own husband, and come together that Satan not tempt you. So physical relations were advocated by God, sexual intimate relationships. One is for pleasure. One is for prevention to getting involved in any other type of fornication. Sexual, uh, sexual uh, aberrations other than husband and wife. The third reason, and the very first one given in Scripture, was procreation. Procreation, okay? Be fruitful and multiply. That was given in the garden. It was also given a second time. Okay, after the flood. After the flood. So, looking and saying, you know, all three, all three were a part of this. Okay. Now, can God prevent some couples from procreating? Yes, he can. He may, he may deem that some people don't have children, but that's his business. Okay. The idea here is what is the norm? The norm is procreation, prevention, and pleasure. Folk, gay relationships cannot complete this threesome. It's, it's simp- simple biology. Two men can't make a baby. Two ladies can't make a baby. And don't come running along and saying, but they can, they can adopt. We're talking the natural, common sense reasons for, for God creating us sexually. Okay? Is it takes a man, it takes a woman, in a marriage relationship is where they're supposed to be. They make the babies. It can't be done any other way. Okay. 
in a natural in a natural sense. I know you can do the test tubes and all those things. But in the natural course of how God laid it out, gay sex doesn't complete God's plan. It just can't. It can't. So when we start going, okay, what does the Bible really say? Let's start with this. Homosexual relationships is abnormal. It's an abnormality, not, and that's based on common sense. Okay? But here's a couple texts. Romans chapter 1, which I want you to go there because we're going to spend some time here, the rest of the class. But just turn there for right now and look at verse, verse 16 where he says these words. For this cause, gave, uh, verse 26, for this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections, even for even their woman did change. Anybody there yet? Okay, there's, a, there's a, the words here that I want you to catch. For even their woman did change the what? Natural use of that which is against nature. God is making this very clear. God's making this is natural for a, for a male woman, husband, wife. Gay sex is not natural. It's not the way that the bodies were designed to complement each other. And he goes on, he says, it's even against nature, and likewise also men leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust toward one another, men working that which is unseemly in the King James means something very shameful. Something very shameful. Okay, so our first response as believers is, number one, this isn't, this isn't natural. Gay relationships are not physically, sexually, this isn't natural. Number two reason, okay? The basic family unit that God designed was one man and one woman, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Now, your response may be, but the Garden of Eden doesn't apply to today. Yes, it does. The very passage that says, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall... Become one flesh. That passage is first given in Genesis 2.24. That same phrase is repeated by Jesus Christ in Matthew 19. It is still applicable during the time period of Jesus Christ. He brings it up and says this is what God designed. When Paul is writing the letter to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 5, he brings it up again during the church age. And that passage is still applicable. One man one woman becoming one flesh. It doesn't change over time. And we're still in the church age. This is still appropriate. This is still God's design for us that this happens. In fact, he says, let every man have his own wife, her own husband. Wife, submit your husband's Christ. And he says, nevertheless, let everyone have his own wife to see the wife reverence her husband. And so it just keeps on coming up. This is the, the uh, this is the, design of God. One woman, one man. Sex is not so personal that God doesn't care what one does. That is one of the arguments used. It's my business. It's nobody else's business. Christians that I've dealt with have even made this comment at times. It's nobody else's business if I am practicing immorality, if I am doing something outside of my marriage or pre-marriage, because it's nobody else's business but mine. If you're a believer, it's God's business. It's God's business. Why? You're bought with a price. Take the bigger context. Uh, add more to that. You are not... What does he even go into in that text? Your blank is the temple of the Spirit of God. Your body. Okay. So he, here's God talks about this several times. Marriage is honorable in all. Let marriage, the marriage bed be undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers. Well, that kind of sums it up. Anything outside of the husband and wife, he calls a whoremongering or adultery. It is good for a man not to intimately touch a woman. That is not the idea of you can't shake hands. The word is about caressing in private parts. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and every woman her own husband. Defraud or don't keep apart. I accept to be with consent. This is the will of God. What is God's will for my life? This is a clear statement. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. You abstain for, from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control your own body. That's the will of God. You want to know the will of God for you? Get away from anything that involves fornication, any type of sexual immorality, whether it be for pornography, premarital sex, whether it be adultery, homosexuality. This is the will of God for you. Okay, for all who are believers. 
homosexual relationships are and are and were were and are wrong. Romans chapter 1. Okay, we'll get there. Here we go. Thou shalt not lie with a womankind going to the Old Testament. This is the law that Jesus operated by at the time that he said I've come to fulfill. If a man lie with a woman as he a man with if a man lies with a man as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They will be put to death, the blood should be upon them. Then Romans will come back to the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, be not deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, the effeminate nor abusers of themselves, and he puts it with other things, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Knowing the law is not made for the righteous, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy, profane, for murderers, for men, slayers, for whoremongers. So he's listing a variety of, of bad behavior. For them that defile themselves with men, for men stealers, slave traders, for liars. Homosexuality is put right there. That is condemned by God. Turning to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them, making them an example. Now, here's the argument with the Sodom and Gomorrah, is people will say it really wasn't God condemning homosexuality. The gay revisionist theologians say that this is the issue. There was a violation of hospitality rules. Okay? That they, they wanted uh, uh, Lot to kick the angels out and not, not be hospitable to them and get them out of the city. Therefore, God burned up the city because they didn't want to house people overnight. That's the re- revision of this text. Okay? Um, and so the other idea that comes out of it is the real issue that God was upset about wasn't homosexuality. It was the attempted rape. This passage has nothing to do with homosexuality. It has to do with rape. Um, however, okay, Jude commenting says, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner gave themselves over to fornication going after strange flesh, unnatural, abnormal type of physical relationships. That's what God says the problem was. He doesn't say it was hospitality. He just talks about there was this attempt are set forth as an example. Therefore, we have the issue. Practicing and promoting homosexuality leads to greater degeneration of standards in the society. Romans chapter 1. We'll start here. We'll pick up next week. Romans chapter 1. Let's take the text. You got it? Romans 1. Starting with verse 19. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power, his Godhead, so that those people are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto a corruptible man, birds, four-footed beasts, creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever and ever. Amen, amen. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their woman did change the natural use into that which is against nature. Question. Okay, here we go. What did God show unto all men? Look at, look at verse 19. What did God show to all people? Yeah, he showed himself. Okay, he's revealing himself. How did he reveal to all people? How did he reveal himself? Through creation. Okay, then through creation, what could they see? His power, his majesty. Okay, so you keep going. What did mankind do with this basic knowledge of God? Okay, according to verse 21, what did they do? Okay, just take it phrase by phrase. What's the first thing they did when they had knowledge of God? Okay, first thing, they glorified, they didn't glorify Him. What else do you have? Then they weren't, they weren't thankful. What else do you have? They became vain in their imaginations. The word imagination is reasoning in their common sense. By the way, does this sound... Does this sound familiar? Okay. They became vain in their imagination. Look at verse 22. What did they do in verse 22? They professed themselves to... But actually... Okay. So we have that. They became pseudo-intellectuals, false intellectuals. Verse 23 and 25. What did they do? Okay. We look and they say they changed the glory of God and they worship creation more than the Creator. Verse 24. What did they do? They turned to satisfying their own lusts. 
Okay, you've got this order? Do you see this? Okay, keep going. Keep going. Watch what happens here in the text. What is the first unclean lust that God mentions? The one that he, he, he portrays what it is. Yeah. He starts with verse 26. Okay. He says, the woman did what? They changed the natural use into that which is against nature. What's he talking about? Anybody want to venture here? What's he mean? Okay. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their own lust one to another. What's he talking about? Men with men working that which is shameful. Shameful. Okay. So the very first, uh, the very first, I'm locked up again. Okay. Um, The very first uh, lustful act that he condemns is homosexuality. I got a question for you. Okay, we'll end with this. What words did he use to describe it? Like in verse, verse 24. What, what, does he, what does he refer to? Uh, the uncleanness in verse... Uncleanness through their lusts. What's he say in verse 26? Unnatural. Okay. You have all unseemly... Things not, by the way, you, you've got to mark your Bibles if you have an uh, English version like I do. The end of verse 28, doing those things which are not convenient. What an unfortunate translation. What an unfortunate translation. It means the things which are not to be done. Okay, convenient doesn't, back in the day that this was translated, it doesn't mean the same as it does today. So make sure you clarify. Things not to be done. And so God, how does God respond? God gives them up to their, their vile affections. Does this look like modern society? That as we accept and promote a certain aberrant lifestyle, does it influence the rest of society? Do people become more foolish and lack common sense? Wow! Wowzy! This text is making it clear God condemns homosexual relationships. God condemns it. If you've got a different uh, understanding interpretation, pray tell how you got that, I don't know. The Bible is clear. But the Bible is also clear that Christ does what towards all men? He loves all. Does he still love those individuals and want to save them? Absolutely.